going to read from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. People, I want to encourage you today, like David did, to speak over your own soul. Exhort yourself. So shoulders back and head up. And like David said, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. If you're with your family, say, oh, my family. Oh, my family, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, because this is the one. This is the God who heals our diseases, who shows us mercy. His steadfast love goes on and on forever. This is the God we worship today. So I want to invite you to rise up, to step up, to stand up, and bring praise to the living God today. We sing.
Your faithfulness, God, it never stops. So we will never stop singing. Your goodness never ends. So our song will go on and on. We worship you today, Lord. We fix our eyes on you. We center our attention on you. Your promises are good. We trust you. Sing the oceans. Oh, oceans may rise over my head. It can't change what you said. It can't change what you said. Oh, I may be found in the valley of death. Change what you said, it can't change what you said. No, no, nothing can change it. Your promise is secure, nothing changes it. Sing the oceans, the oceans may rise over my head. It can't change what you said, it can't change what you Oh, I may be found in the valley of death. It can't change what you said. It can't change what you said. You are good. You are good. And everything you do is good. Yeah. You are kind. And everything you do is kind. And you never will So you are good And everything you do is good The oceans may rise Over my head It can't change what you said It can't change what you said Though I may be found In the valley of death It can't change what you said Yeah. 
says, oh, yes, and amen. I know nothing could ever change my Come on, sing your promises, oh, yes, and amen. Your promises, oh, yes, and amen. Thank you. 
As we come to give to the Lord of our tithes and offerings today, I want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving, for continuing to remain faithful. We got a, a few great stories that have happened this week just here at the church. As you've given, we want to continue to be outward facing in this season. We don't just want to turn inward and make sure we are okay. And so this last week, we sent out thousands upon thousands of dollars into the nations of the earth, partnering up with our missionary partners in Central America, taking care of kids, who are living in poverty, many of them who are orphans, making sure they get good educations. We sent money to Central America. We sent money to South Africa. We partner with a group there called Club 21, and they take care of kids with Down syndrome, kids who are fighting through, kids making sure that they have what they need. And so your giving has gone to that. We sent money this week to Pastor William in Lahore, Pakistan, who's fighting 
to take care of the poor and the needy and the hungry all around that region that he's living in. Brothers and sisters, our giving is making a difference, not just here in our city, but in the nations of the earth. And so I wanna thank you for continuing to give today. So what, what, what I want you to do is to join me in prayer as we pray for our missionary partners that are serving Jesus in some of the most difficult situations on the planet. Lord, today we pray blessing over them. We pray the peace of God over them. We pray that you would cause your face to shine on them. We pray that you would bind all fear where they're worried about their next paycheck coming through, where they're worried about how they're gonna take care of the people you've called them to serve. We pray that as these gifts arrive, Lord, that it would change the atmosphere, that there would be hope, that there would be joy, that faith would arise among them. We pray for the sick to be healed. We pray for those who are discouraged to be encouraged by you today. And so Lord, we give today and we pray that these gifts would go into the nations of the earth and bring blessing and joy and abundance and provision in Jesus' name. So we give by faith and Lord, we ask, do your work in the nations of the earth. And all God's people said, amen. There's three ways you can give. You can give at newlifechurch.org. You can text it in or you can send in a, a gift through the mail and address it to 11025 Voyager Parkway. Let's continue to ask God to do his work in the nations as we give. say yes and we say amen. Let the praise of our God rise up all over the city, all over the world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, singing the praises of God, the truth of God. It is good. Amen and amen. Friends, let's prepare our hearts for the word of God. Grab your Bibles, grab your notebooks, press in, lean in. Grace and peace. Oh, good morning, New Life Downtown. It makes me so happy to be talking to you this morning. I miss you guys so much. I miss hearing your voices. I miss passing the peace. I miss those squeaky chairs in Palmer. Okay, maybe not so much. Uh, the, hey, this morning we're going to continue our faith in the wilderness, a series that we've been in over the last several weeks. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Joshua chapter 2. Let's open in a word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your goodness to us. We ask now as we open up the scriptures that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, and open our hearts to believe. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've been watching, but I have been hooked 
on the series, the documentary on Michael Jordan uh, called The Last Dance. And it reminds me of the years that we moved from Malaysia to America. It was 1998, uh, excuse me, 1988, um, when my family moved from Malaysia to America and we moved to Portland, Oregon. And uh, so, first of all, it was kind of my introduction to basketball and to the NBA. And I thought, man, this is amazing. What a sport, uh, what fun, what excitement. And living in Portland, I became a Blazers fan. You know, there was Clyde Drexler uh, and they had Terry Porter was their point guard. They had the center named Kevin Duckworth. Wasn't all that great, but the Blazers were kind of on the uptick. And so I became this hardcore Blazers fan, but it's the late 80s. And so I was obviously also a Michael Jordan fan. I had this uh, Nerf hoop in my uh, bedroom down in the basement of our little, you know, uh, uh, apartment complex thing, uh, apartment. And, uh, and I had posters of Jordan up on the wall. And I felt mildly guilty as a Blazers fan that I was, I had Jordan posters up, but it was MJ. Uh, but I would listen to the Blazers games on the radio. We didn't have uh, cable or anything like that. And so whenever the Blazers were playing, I'd tune in my little radio alarm thing by my bed and listen to the play-by-play -play guy. And then once in a while, a game would be on TV and I'd use like a coat hanger as an antenna and try to you know, dial it in and watch some of these games. And it was amazing. And when we left uh, Portland to go back to Malaysia. My parents went to a Bible college there uh, in, in Portland and I was 10. My older sister was 13 and we lived there for three years. And when we moved back to Malaysia, it was August of 91, the Blazers were starting to make a run at the, uh, at the title. And I kind of thought, okay, maybe they're gonna win it the season after you know, we move away, it's all right. And I, I kind of followed it from afar. Unfortunately, it was also the era where Jordan and the Bulls were just taking off. It was that very next season where uh, Jordan's Bulls would win their first ring, and I think it was against the Blazers. And I thought, man, how unlucky that I became a fan of the team of the city that we moved to, but it was the wrong side of basketball history, basically. And now watching the documentary, of course, uh, the legend of who Jordan is and all of that, you think, man, why couldn't we have moved to America and moved to a city like Chicago? I could have become a Bulls fan at just the right time for such a time as this. Instead, we were on the wrong side of basketball history. I wonder if sometimes that's how we feel about God and his work in the world, where we kind of feel like we're on the outside, maybe even on the wrong side of the story. And in times of crisis, sometimes these fears get amplified in our hearts and amplified in our minds. And so we start to ask ourselves, we start to wonder, wait a minute, maybe God, you know, maybe there is a God, maybe he is at work, but maybe it's over there. Maybe it's in those people's lives. Maybe it's in their world, but not so much in mine. Because after all, look at all the things that are happening to me. I'm going through this kind of hardship and this kind of hardship. And the person that I know or a family member that I know is sick or, or we've lost our job or our business is in shambles. And you're thinking, wait, if there is a good God and he is supposedly at work in the midst of all things, maybe his story is over there. Maybe I don't even belong in this story. Sometimes in moments of crisis, we actually begin to question all sorts of things that we had once sort of believed. And maybe for some of you, it just provokes your fears or anxieties about whether or not God loves you, whether or not God wants you as part of the story. And so you kind of feel like, uh, you, know, you know, whatever is going on, whatever God is doing, I must be on the outside of that. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Rahab. And if there ever was an unlikely character in God's salvation story, it's Rahab. Thus far in this series, Faith in the Wilderness, we've tracked Moses. We've even talked about Joshua. In between, we've talked about the children of Israel and their sin, but God's generosity and kindness to them, providing for them with manna from heaven and water from the rock. But now we're about to talk about Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite woman who worked as a prostitute. If you're keeping score, that's three strikes against her. To be a Canaanite in the Bible story was to find yourself on the wrong side of things, was to find yourself as an outsider to this call of God, or at least apparently an outsider. And then to be a woman in the ancient world was to be relegated as a far lower status. And then to have the kind of profession that Rahab had, one of poor reputation, all of a sudden you say, why do we even know this person's name? How is it we even know 
who she is. In fact, it's one of the remarkable things about the Bible is the world that the Bible emerged from, the ancient Near East, would very rarely mention women. And if they did, it wasn't in a favorable light. But here's the Old Testament introducing us by name to this Canaanite woman named Rahab. And so the story begins here in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua Nun's son secretly sent two men as spies from Shittim. He said, go, look over the land, especially Jericho. And they set out and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they bedded down there. Now someone told the king of Jericho, men from Israelites have come here tonight to spy on the land. Now, I think if there was a film score to the reading of God's word, you'd kind of hear the ominous uh, symphony start playing. And this is a spy story we're about to listen to. And so in verse three, so the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, send out the men who came to you, the ones who came to your house, because they've come to spy on the entire land. Dun, dun, dun. What's she going to do? This is like the thriller spy movies where the good guys are finding themselves at the mercy of a kindly but kind of dangerous woman with sketchy reputation. And the question is, is she going to be for them or against them? Verse four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And then she said, oh, of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. The men left when it was time to close the gate at dark, but I didn't know where the men went. I don't know where the men went. Hurry, chase after them. You might catch up with them. This is Rahab sending them on a false errand, using misdirection to get them off the trail here. Verse six, but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the flax stalks that she had laid out on the roof. And the men from Jericho chased after them in the direction of the Jordan up to the forge. And as soon as those chasing them went out, the gate was shut behind them. Now the spy story has become a little bit of a comedy because these guys leave the city saying, where are they? This is almost like a Looney Tunes thing. They're running and boom, the gate shut. And you think, okay, wow, close. We, 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 we dodged a bullet there. Why would Rahab do this? As we read on in the story, we discover how she was feeling. She speaks. Verse eight, before the spies bedded down, Rahab went up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. The entire population of the land has melted down in fear because of you. She's like, I've heard. I know who you guys are. Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Reed Sea in front of you when you left Egypt. We've also heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. You utterly wiped them out. Now, whether or not this is hyperbole or an exaggeration or a figure of speech, the, the point is that Rahab understands that something is on the side of these people and it's caused her to be afraid. In fact, verse 11, she says, we heard this and our hearts turned to water. What an image. Because of you, people can no longer work up their courage. This is because the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. In the ancient world, it was common for people to believe in several gods. And so a, a, a given civilization or group of people might say, well, we've got the God of the crops and we've got the God of the rain and we've got the God for this season and the God for that season and the God when we have this kind of request and the God when we have this kind of request. But Rahab is starting to sense something different. She's saying your God is the Lord in heaven above and on the earth below. She's kind of saying something tells me that your God is the sole sovereign God over all. Not only is Rahab beginning to pick up something about who God is, she's very much becoming aware of where she stands in relation to this God. This is how salvation often begins. It's not just with a little bit of an apprehension of what God is like, but it's also with the recognition of where we are. It's like that moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, aware that they've sinned, begin to hide. And God says, where are you? Adam's like, yeah, we're hiding. Here Rahab realizes she's not only on the outside of the salvation story, she's actually on the wrong side of the salvation story. 
Rahab finds herself as an enemy of the people of God. She's not just on the outside, kind of a person just missing out. She's actually on the wrong side of the story. And this morning, I want us to look at how Rahab responds. What do you do when you discover that you might be on the wrong side of things? What do you do when you discover that you actually might be not just on the edges, but actually in opposition to the thing that God is doing? Verse 12, Rahab continues her speech to the spies and she says, Now I have been loyal to you. And I've underlined this word loyal. We're going to come back to it in a moment to talk about it a bit more. So pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. And now Rahab starts to really plead here personally. She says, spare the lives of my father and mother, brothers and sisters, along with everything they own. Rescue us from death. And the men said to her, we swear by our own lives to secure yours. Basically, they're saying our life for your life. We swear our lives by yours, a, a bit of a hint towards a substitutionary sacrifice. If you don't reveal our mission, we will deal loyally and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. And you may be drawn into this kind of spy intrigue story and thinking, well, wait a minute, what authority do they have? I mean, you've probably seen enough James Bond movies to know that the spy may go rogue and ch change uh, the, the plan a little bit, but there's nothing to say that the government or the, or the or agency that they come from will back them up. So what is Joshua actually going to do when the moment arrives? Well, fast forward a few chapters to Joshua chapter six, and you see here that they're about to go in and, and it says in verse 22 of Joshua 6, Joshua spoke to the two men who had scouted out the land, go to the prostitute's house, bring out the woman from there along with everyone related to her, exactly as you pledged to her. And so the young men who had been spies went and brought Rahab out along with her father, her mother, her brothers and everyone related to her. And they brought out her whole clan out and let them stay outside Israel's camp. Now listen to verse 25. And Joshua let Rahab the prostitute live, her family and everyone related to her, keeps repeating this, it's not just for her, but it's everyone connected to her, so that her family, at the time of the writing of the book of Joshua, the writer says this, so her family still lives among Israel today. Why? Because she hid the spies whom Joshua had sent to scout out Jericho. Think about this for a moment. Here's a woman found herself on the wrong side of the salvation story, found herself in the path of what she thought was sure and certain destruction. And yet a few chapters later, she and her family are now integrated into Israel. They live among the people of God. Her whole trajectory was changed. Her whole life story is different. Not only her trajectory, her identity. She is now integrated into the people of God. How did this happen? What is it that Rahab did? You see, Rahab is named not only in the Old Testament, but actually also in the New Testament. In a few places, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute wasn't killed with the disobedient because she welcomed the spies in peace. Now watch this. Hebrews says it's by faith. But James, the very next book, the way it's ordered in the New Testament, says this in James 2. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's just, both are referring to her actions. Both are referring to how she welcomed the spies with peace. And, how, and in James, it elaborates a little bit more. But one marks it as faith. The other marks it as works. And we got we to hear that as American evangelicals and we think, which is it? Is it faith or is it works? And partly it's because we have such airtight ways of understanding these terms. We think of faith as belief, kind of a mental belief. Yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. Check the box. I got it. Yeah. Or I don't have to do anything else. Otherwise, it's legalism. Or we think of works as like legalism. Oh, this is all performance based. No, 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 brother. I don't need to worry about works. But here the Bible comfortably explains the same story of the same woman and says, one says by faith and the other says by works. What are we missing here? 
You see, in the scripture, belief and obedience actually belong together. And they belong together under the banner of something we might call allegiance or loyalty. Joshua 2, verse 12, we go back to that verse. Rahab to the spies, she says, Now I have been loyal to you. So pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. This word loyal, this trans translated loyal, is the Hebrew word chesed. Now that's hard to say, maybe fun to say, chesed. But what that word means is a kind of strong covenantal love. In fact, most of the time you read it in the Old Testament, chesed is referring to God's steadfast love, God's loving kindness, God's covenantal pledge to his people. And no doubt the word is also used in other settings, so it's not automatically a loaded word. But I can't help but wonder if this is Rahab beginning to approximate the life of faith. Maybe this is Rahab demonstrating what Jesus would call mustard seed faith. Maybe this is Rahab saying, I know something about your God and therefore I want to demonstrate something like covenant love. I'd like to suggest to you that Rahab demonstrated a loyalty that brings together faith and works. An allegiance that actually combines belief and obedience. I also think it's interesting, and every time Rahab is named, the, the, the narrator can't help but remind us of what she does as her profession. But here I think it's, the, the irony becomes clear. Rahab, who made a living out of participating in someone else's infidelity, gets to participate in God's salvation story through an act of fidelity. She demonstrated a loyalty that brings together faith and works, an allegiance that combines belief and obedience. But the emphasis in the salvation story is never on our faith. It's always on God's grace. There's something about this Rahab story that is meant to make us notice God's grace. As a sign of who she is, she's supposed to hang the scarlet cord outside her house. And you're thinking, aha, red cord, blood of Jesus. Certainly some of the early church teachers began to make that connection. But actually in the Old Testament, the most immediate connection you would make is Passover. Passover, that moment before the exodus into the wilderness, before their journey into the wilderness began. This whole story began because the people of God marked out the doorposts with the blood of the lamb and God passed over them. We're used to associating God's deliverance with this red outside the house. Except, except that at Passover, he's rescuing Israel. And here, he's rescuing a Canaanite woman who worked as a prostitute. All of a sudden, our mind is blown. What we thought was just redemption for us four and no more or a small group of people is actually God's radical generosity, God's grace at work to rescue and redeem anyone who wants to get in on this story. See, in case anyone forgot, the whole reason God called Abraham was so all the families of the earth could be blessed in him. The whole reason God called Israel was so all the nations could call upon the name of the Lord. And so in a very real way, we see God's generous act of salvation working here. And Rahab gets swept up, not just in the salvation story, but specifically Rahab gets swept up in the Jesus story. See, the third time Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, we read Hebrews, we read James, which is also mentioned in Matthew's gospel, in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And on and on it goes. Rahab gets listed in this genealogy. Her act of loyalty and faith gets met with God's heart of generosity and grace. Friends, as we think about the scripture this morning, it's good to remember that we are all Rahab. We're all Rahab. We're all on the outside looking in. We're all on the wrong side of the story. Paul said it this way. He said, we were God's enemies. We were definitely, we were the ones that should have been destroyed. But he says in Romans 5, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
A few weeks ago, Pastor Daniel Grothy talked about Jesus as the greater Joshua. But watch how this plays out. If Jesus is the greater Joshua, he should have come, looked for faith, and only saved the ones who were like, whoa, 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 Jesus, we believe. But this is how good and how great God's mercy is. Jesus, the greater Joshua, came marching into enemy territory and rescued us even before we were ready to call on him. In a way, Rahab demonstrated more faith than we did. We weren't ready. We were still his enemies. We were still stuck in our sin. And Jesus says, I'm dying for you anyway. I'm giving my life for you anyway. I'll take judgment into myself so that you and your house can be saved. Jesus, the greater Joshua, has come for us. Paul in the New Testament says, even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Something beautiful about recognizing the great mercy of God. Friends, it's not too late this morning for faith. It's not too late to respond to King Jesus with the kind of fidelity, with the kind of loyalty and allegiance that pulls together belief and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and working in me we can demonstrate loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus. We don't have to live against God. We don't have to live on the outside looking in. We don't have to live on the wrong side of the salvation story. We can say, God, I want in. I want to join this story. I want to be part of it. Lord, take my allegiance, feeble as it might be, and work me in to the story. One of the beautiful pictures I got of this came late last year when my parents uh, became American citizens. So we grew up in Malaysia, my mom in Singapore, and uh, later Malaysia. And I, I moved to the States for college, and I became a citizen in, uh, in 2009, and my parents moved here in 2013. And it was in late 2019, after years of having their green card and all of that, that they completed the process and became citizens. And their ceremony was much better than mine. Uh, they were over at Library 21C, and several of you were there, and they were with dozens of others who were taking the oath of allegiance that day. And, and, and they came up, and everyone on the stage had to say this, this pledge, not just a pledge of allegiance, but they had to renounce something. And part of the words of it goes like this. They had to say, I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. In other words, before you can become a citizen of this place, you have to renounce all other allegiances. That's a little bit like the life of faith. In a moment, in an instant, as they took that pledge, all of a sudden the great legacy, the great story of America's history became their story. They stand in line and say, yeah, that we can look back and talk about Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and say, we're, we're, we've taken our place now in the middle of that story. Friend, in a very real way, you don't have to listen to these Bible stories and think, well, that's nice, that's somebody else's tradition. I remember my grandma, my grandpa. You, know, you can say, this is now my story. I get in on this. I get to participate in this. I get to step into the life of faith by pledging my allegiance and fidelity to Jesus. If you have the communion elements close by, would you gather them and maybe wrangle the kids from running around and uh, bring them together in the living room here? Whatever you've got, we've got a cracker and some juice. And, but when we've been in our home uh, worshiping with you online, we, we, we've used, you know, all kinds of things. So just whatever you can uh, wrangle nearby, um, let's get ready to come to the Lord's table. The table is where we renew our oath of allegiance to King Jesus. But it's also where we remember his pledge of fidelity to us. Early Christians called the table a, a sacramentum. It's a Latin word that later we get the word sacrament from, but sacramentum was a patch that Roman soldiers would wear on their uniform that showed their pledge of fidelity to Rome and to Caesar. And the early Christians said, no, no, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. The, the, the table is where we renew our fidelity to King Jesus, not Caesar, not to any man or empire. And more than that, the table is where King Jesus has promised himself to us in his own body and blood. So if you've got the bread and the cup, would you hold them now? And I want to lead you in this prayer of confession. 
Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, it's my great joy to say to you that the Lord has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. All of your sins have been already forgiven, and we rejoice in that today. On the night that our Lord was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks to the Father, he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and when he'd given thanks to the Father, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you receive this, do this in remembrance of me. And so if you could, where you are, let's say this mystery of our faith again. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Let's receive them now. And take a moment wherever you are and you're maybe out at the park, maybe in your home, apartment, just begin to thank him. Thank you, Jesus, for being the good and gracious king who rescues us. Thank you that we can get swept up in your story. Thank you that even if we found ourselves on the wrong side of it, we can stand with you now. Give us the grace, Lord, to show our faith to you, to live out a loyalty and allegiance to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Friends, it's been so great being with you uh, this morning at church. We're longing for the day when we can see one another's faces. And so I just want to send you out into your day, send you out into your week with a blessing, with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord turn towards you, be gracious to you, and grant you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Continue to follow along on our New Life Downtown Facebook page, our New Life Downtown YouTube channel, which is all of our previous services and sermons from the last several years on there. Uh, and join us on Wednesday nights for a night of an hour of worship and prayer every Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. Uh, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Don't forget our Facebook uh, group, the New Life Downtown Congregation, where we have morning prayer uh, every weekday as well. God bless you. We'll see you soon.